Wow, I love watching Masters at Work. Thank you so much, Melissa. And God is just, it's just another testament to how richly he has blessed this congregation with so many different gifted people, not the least of which are the musicians of this church and singers and all of the blessings that they um, give us as a result of their giftedness. Well, good morning once again, church. It's good to see everybody here today. And um, I want to welcome each one of you. For any of you who are visiting today, we have been taking a little hiatus from the book of Philippians. And we have begun a series that I've entitled Treasuring the Trinity. Treasuring the Trinity. We're going to be looking at part two today in that series, what will be a three-part series focusing on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week, you will remember that we embarked upon this journey as we looked into the nature of God as he exists in Trinity. And we were reminded of the fact that when we tackle a study of this uh, nature and of this magnitude, it really requires our thinking caps to be put on. We need to think deeply about this topic in order to be equipped, but ultimately in order to be inspired by the truth of it. We are not just Bible heads here. We are not theologue heads, if you will, walking around boasting of the strength of our, of our doctrine. We, we are those who are inspired by the truth of the Word of God, and I hope to do that very thing today. As you recall, it's a matter of knowing God. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus whom you have sent. Now, you'll recall we began with a couple of um, oh, assertions last week about the Trinity in general. The first was that we affirm that there is but one true God. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Thus, putting bookends on the beginning of eternity, if you can so if you can so describe, and putting a bookend on the end of eternity and saying there is nothing in between other than I being God. And while there is but one true God, we also said that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week, we beheld the wonder of the Father as we looked at him being creator and sustainer and redeemer of the world. But in, particularly, in particular, we focused on him being father. And we talked about that and that lesson's available. Today we're going to shift gears into the second point of this series, and that is journey into, with me this morning, in our effort to gaze upon the majesty of the Son, the majesty of Christ. We've seen the glory and wonder of the Father, and now we're going to see the majesty of of Christ. And I choose my words carefully that that our Christ is a majestic Christ. He is a majestic king worthy of our worship. I have one goal today and that is to exalt Christ as high as I possibly can in your hearing. You being witnesses to the glory of Jesus Christ himself. We want to honor him as the majestic Lord and Savior that he is as we get to know this one true God and Jesus, whom he has sent. Now, sadly, not everybody in our day knows Jesus Christ in the way that you will come to know him by the end of this service. In, in fact, a recent survey 
uh, done by Ligonier Ministries entitled The State of Theology. This is a survey that is done for evangelical Christians every year where they just kind of take the temperature of people's understanding of various theological topics. And one topic in particular they covered was the topic of Christology, that is the study of Jesus Christ. You would be interested to know that 53% of people who were surveyed in this believe that Jesus is less divine than God the Father. That God the Father has somehow uh, more divinity, more godhood to him than Jesus Christ. 53% of Christians said this. 60% of believers said that Jesus is fully God. But 40% said he's something else than God. Half God, or perhaps not God at all. And then an amazing 19% responded to this survey believing that Jesus Christ is a created being, that he's a creature made by God with no claims to deity whatsoever. And as you know from history, this is nothing new. There have been disputes about who Jesus Christ is from the beginning of church history. You will remember the false teacher, the heretic Arius, who believed that Jesus was in fact that created being. He was countered by men like Athanasius, his student, surprisingly enough, countered by men who fought for the truth about Christ and who paid dear prices to present the truth and to defend it. Modern variations of these historical heresies are alive and well today in the false teachings of Mormonism. Mormonism looks to Christ and they say, well, Apart from the fact that there's many gods, Jesus in particular, according to the Mormon faith, is Satan's brother, created by God. Jehovah's Witnesses also believe that Jesus is a created angel. They believe that he is the highest angel, but nonetheless a creation of God. And the cults ad nauseum will have all these different views of the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, they are just the old heresies dressed up in new clothing. I don't want you to be unnerved today. I don't want you to be concerned in the slightest about that. We're going to talk about some of these heresies, and they actually strengthen us. They actually make us better. They make us stronger as believers, as you will see by the end of this message here. Yet, they do impact the church, do they not? False doctrine uh, doctrines of demons do find their way into the church. They find them in teachers and in literature, sometimes even in music. You will see heresy slipping in. And it is, uh, you'll recall I had mentioned that Walter Martin had mentioned that uh, the average Jehovah's Witness can turn the average Christian into a theological pretzel in a matter of minutes at a doorstep. And it's exactly when that happens, it is exactly because the Christians have not disciplined themselves first and foremost to understand who Christ is and to know him from the scriptures. And that's what we're going to do today. Certainly, this is indeed a time for the study of the person on, of Christ as we gaze upon the majesty of Christ. I'm going to handle this lesson today in two headings, two very simple headings. I, I do think you have an outline there. You'll see this come to life here in a minute here. But two main sections here, and we're going to talk about the humanity of Christ, and then we're going to talk about the deity of Christ. Very simple lesson today, two-point lesson here. We're, we're going to start, first of all, with the humanity of Christ, because this is very important. 
Last week I told you when we studied the divinity of the Father, I said that nobody questions the fact that God the Father is God. Uh, nobody, nobody calls that into dispute ever, that the Father is God. And I will also add today that in like manner, nobody disputes the fact that Jesus was a man. No, nobody will argue that God is not, that, that the Father is not God, and nobody will argue that Jesus is not a man, at least nobody really in their right mind. His birth was foretold. He, he is a very special man. His birth was foretold that out of the root of Jesse, out of the line of David, he would be born to a virgin. You, you will be familiar with Isaiah 7.14 as we come across the um, Christmas season, and we'll be hearing lots of these types of scriptures. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, God among us. Later in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, that very, very special portion of scripture to believers. For to us, a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it speaks about how there will be no end to his government. And on the throne of David, he will reign over his kingdom. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. His birth was foretold. His childhood was normal. Let me just say that again. He had a normal childhood. Unlike the strange and weird apocryphal writings where you see Jesus doing magic tricks and, and uh, y you know, uh, stories of him pulling birds out of his tunic and, and it just strange, odd things. That was not the case with our Lord. He grew up as a normal little boy. In fact, Galatians 4.4 4 says that, that God sent his son, being Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. What does that mean? It means that he came into this earth like every other human being ever came, born through a mother, born of a woman, born under the law. What does that mean? Accountable to God. As all men and women and children are accountable to God, Jesus came into the same world from a mother accountable to the law of God. And he grew up. He grew up as a child. He then turned into a young man. He then turned into a mature man. And he learned how to be a man. He learned how to be an adult. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. And don't think for a moment that he learned obedience through disobedience. He did not. You do not have to disobey to learn how to obey. That is positive righteousness that he was modeling for mankind. Luke 2.52 tells us some very interesting developmental aspects of our Lord Jesus as a man. It says in Luke 2.52, Jesus kept increasing, you know this, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and favor with men. What, what does that mean? Well, wisdom simply means intellectual development. His mind had to grow. Now, stature means physical development. He was small one day, and he grew bigger as a man grows. Favor with God, what is that? It's his spiritual development. 
It's, it's his understanding of worship and, and, and his relating to his creator. Like any child needs to learn growing up. And then ultimately, favor with men. What is that? That is his social development. How to interact and how to get along with other people, siblings, etc., etc. You see, folks, I'm, t- I'm pressing this because we have to understand Jesus was a man. And unlike those classical paintings, Jesus, you see these paintings in, from the Renaissance or whatever, Jesus walking around with a halo. He didn't have a halo wherever he went. Or, or he wasn't levitating, you know, two inches off the ground. He, he, he didn't teleport to different places, you know. He, how about this? He didn't glow in the dark. Jesus looked just like any other man. He had flesh that could bleed. He had bones that could ache. He could feel pain. He could feel hunger. He needed food to survive. He needed to sleep. He needed to bathe. He experienced the fullness of what you and I go through in our human life of emotions and difficulties and trouble yet without sin. He spoke and looked and lived like the typical Jewish boy of his day. In fact, Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 seems to suggest that he had no comely appearance that we should recognize him in any way. What does that mean? It just means that he looked like any other Jewish person on the block. Nothing really special about this person from a human perspective. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there is one God and one mediator, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We have to, without reservation, affirm the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was a man. And that is really the first point in our message. Nobody in their right mind will dispute the fact that he is a man. But the issue before us today is this. We are not debating that our Lord is human. What is often on the table for debate is that our Lord was divine. And that brings me to my second point today. Not only do we see the humanity of Christ, but we must also take a look at the divinity of Christ because this is a completely different approach to who the Lord Jesus is. The Lord Jesus was 100% man-human, but he was also divine. What do I mean by divinity? I mean deity. What do I mean by deity? I mean godnessness. It, we are speaking of his godness when we speak of his deity. And this is a bold claim, and I understand that. We must come to the point where we understand that while Jesus was a man, very man, he was indeed God, very God as well. And we should unashamedly, boldly proclaim, let it be announced that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, this man, Christ Jesus. He is not one-third God, one-third Father, one-third Son, one-third Holy Spirit, not at all. He is not half God, half God, half man. He is the God-man, and he is not one of many gods, as Mormonism would suggest, No, he is fully God with all the rights, with all the prerogatives, with all the attributes of deity. I'll never forget the time when I was just a young believer. I grew up in the church. I heard a lot of Christian doctrine, but I never really processed it. It wasn't until I was 19 years old that I was born again. You see, you can can go to church. You, You can do all the stuff, 
And you can look pretty good on the outside, but the inside has not been renewed. It has not been cleansed and, and remade by the Spirit of God. And that was me. And so I was 19 years old before I actually experienced the new birth. And my sister, who was a Christian long before me, my little sister, Eliza, she, um, she heard of my conversion, and it wasn't long before I remember the, a Saturday she had called. And we had talked up until this point, and, but she, she would call on Saturdays. And she, this Saturday she said, okay, so what we got to talk about this Saturday is this. She said, it's important for you to understand that Jesus is God, okay? And I, I was like, okay, this was the extent of my theological education as a 19-year-old. Jesus is God. My sister, I took her word for it. I, I didn't really know it for myself. But she said, just whatever happens, wherever you go, whatever you, whoever you encounter, Jesus is God. Easy enough? Easy enough to remember. So get off the phone, and I'm telling you, it's not 10 to 15 minutes later, a knock comes on my door, right? And it's these very handsome-looking people in suits with very bright literature that catches your eye. And uh, I answered the door, and they said, well, hello, we are from the Watchtower Society. We are witnesses of Jehovah wanting to tell you about the kingdom, etc., etc. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, great. Um, I'm a Christian. And they said, oh, okay. And I just, I didn't know any other theology than to say, uh, I believe Jesus is God. And they said, well, you know, and they opened up a, a Bible that I had never seen before, and they said, well, Jesus is a God. And actually, you know, it's Michael the Archange Archangel, and it was, a, it was a very odd discussion that I had never heard of, and I started, my heart started to race, and, but they were being very clear that we don't believe that Jesus is God. And so I, I somehow made it through that conversation, and yeah, yeah, you know, we'll talk another day, and, and I'm nervous, and I'm pacing around the house. They end up leaving, and I'm very unsettled about this experience, and so I go next door to my neighbor's house, who had kind of been kind to me as they were a retired couple, and they were just always available with food or snacks or whatever, and so I just went to the safest place I knew. I went next door, and I was kind of out of breath, and I said, did they come to your house? And they said, who? And I said, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're out there. <laughs> and they said, no. And I said, well, I was talking with them at the door, and I was just amazed. Do you know that they don't believe Jesus is God? And this lovely couple looked at each other, kind of reading each other's minds like you know spouses can do. They looked at each other, and then the, the wife looked back to me and said, um, well, we don't know anything about that. We're Mormons. <laughs> and as a 19-year-old, I realized I was out of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> and I realized before I even read Walter Martin that I was that theological pretzel that was just twisted up by whichever stronger influence at the time, if it's my sister, if it's a Jehovah's Witness, or if it's a Mormon, and I'm just torn back and forth. And this set me on a lifelong mission that I have not ceased to take steps on today to study the Word of God and to study the Lord Jesus Christ and learn exactly who He is. 
Well, that was all introduction. That was all for free because now I'm going to preach the sermon. And I actually have a, oh, a 10-point sermon. Can you believe it? 10 points. You say, seriously, well, listen, uh, this could be a 10-sermon series. It really could. And we're just going to be able to dance on each of these points here today. And they're in your outline here because I want you to be equipped. I don't want you to have to experience what I had to experience that day in understanding who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Now, as we begin, you don't have to turn there, but it's interesting. We're, we're not the first person to question. We're not the first people to ask, who is Jesus? In uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23, you will remember this scene. The disciples are with Jesus in a boat, and Jesus is sleeping, right? You recall this? And a storm comes up. And the storm is about to tip the boat over. It's a bad enough, severe enough weather that the disciples are fearful of death. And it's a great storm, it says in verse 23. And uh, Jesus is, excuse me, asleep during this storm. And so they came to him, they awoke him and saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. You're sleeping, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? And he arose, and note this, verse 26, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. You see, we just read through that so quickly. We just say, well, yeah, he, you know, he calmed the sea. Oh, how nice. What a good teacher Jesus is. Now listen, do you know that this man that I just explained to you, this man who grew up Mary's child is in the boat with these disciples and he's sleeping during a storm at, in perfect peace. His disciples are afraid of death and he rebukes the wind. He controls the weather. And the men marveled, verse 27, saying, here's the question, what kind of a man is this? What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is this Jesus? We were not the first to ask. 2,000 years ago, they were asking, who is this Jesus? Well, I'm going to explain to you in 10 very brief titles. I'm just going to give you titles today and just a few verses that go with each title to answer the question, who is Jesus? If you're taking notes, first of all, would you write in, he is first and foremost the eternal Word of God. He is the eternal Word of God. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to do a little Bible study today. We're going to work together through these texts of scriptures, so hopefully you have your Bibles with you. Open to John chapter 1, and I, I referenced this uh, text last week. John 1, you're familiar with it. It says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. You, you really can't get more simple than that. It's a child can understand this, um, especially if the child has read Genesis 1-1, because you know what Genesis 1-1 says, right? In the beginning, God. Here, John 1-1 says, wait a minute, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then if you're wondering, 
all things came into being by him. By whom? By the word. The word brought things into, into, the, into being from the beginning. And apart from him, who? The word. Apart from the word, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is the word of God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's questions about that, just drop down to verse 14 where it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Certainly, verse 14 is speaking of the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Possibly it is speaking to the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John were taken up upon the mount with this man, Christ Jesus, and Jesus pulls back his humanity and shows them his divinity. And do you remember what that text says? It says, his face shone like the noonday sun. I don't know if you've ever tried to look at the sun, but we read that text. Oh, yeah, shiny face day. Oh, hold on. When's the last time you've tried to look at the sun and Jesus peels back his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration and they behold this glory full of grace and truth, more than a mere man, more than just the carpenter's son growing up in Nazareth. This was the word having become flesh this was the word in first john you don't have to go there but in first john it was the word he says that which was from the beginning that which our ears heard that which our eyes beheld that which our hands handled concerning the word of life and this is the life that we proclaim unto you this is an amazing amazing teaching that god himself has become flesh and we heard his voice on our eardrums. And our eyes picked up the visual signals that he was... And, and our hands actually touched the word of life. Verse 18 of John 1, still in the Gospel of John. No man has seen God at any time. I love all these people, you know, oh, I saw God. I saw God. I'm sorry. I've done a word study in the Greek on verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. You know what it means? It means no man has seen God at any time. <laughs> but look, it says the only begotten God or Son, in some of your translations, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. Well, oh, I could just do a sermon on that text. Let's go to point number two, or we're never going to get out of here today. Point number two, he is the great I am. Would you write that in? He is the great I am. Go to, still in the book of John, we'll just hang out here for a little while, John 8. It happens in verse 58. I'll just paint the brief context here. Jesus is confronting the Jews, or the Jews are confronting him. They are, um, he's talked about their need to be free. They've said, well, we've never been in prison, which was a lie. They've been in prison all through their history by other nations. The truth will set you free, Jesus is saying. And they say, well, we're Abraham's offspring. We're, we're, we're fine. We're good to go. We grew up in the synagogue. We grew up in the church. And Jesus says, well, if Abraham you were your father, you would do the deeds of, of Abraham. Um, but you're seeking to kill me, verse 40. I've told you the truth. Abraham would not have done this. <laughs> Saying, you're not of your father, Abraham. You're of your father, the devil, he said. He, he basically called them demon offspring. 
And he says, if you were of your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and have come from God. And then you'll want to just study this out. He's saying, you know, why don't you understand? It's because you cannot hear my words. And it says, because I speak the truth, verse 45, you do not believe me. And you're not of God. And the Jews' response are, well, then you're a Samaritan. And he basically says, you've been born of fornication. It's name-calling here is all this is. And then he says, if anyone keeps my word, you'll never see death. And verse 52, the Jews say to him, now we know that you do have a demon. Abraham died in the prophets, and you also say, if anyone keeps my word, you'll never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, are you? (laughs) And then Jesus says these amazing words. He says, um, your father Abraham, who you talk about, he rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it, and he was glad, verse 56. What's he getting at here is that Jesus has this timeless element here. He's claiming timelessness. And the Jews got it. They, they said, you are not 50 years old, and yet you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Thus, taking on the Exodus 3.14 covenant name of Yahweh. Remember when, when Moses said, I'm going to Pharaoh, but who am I going to say sent me? I can't just say anybody sent me. Who am I going to say sent me? And you remember what, what God said to Moses. He says, I'll tell you who sent me, who sent you. Tell him I am sent you, the eternal one, the ever existing one. He says, I am has sent me to you. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord God, your fathers, to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of, A- um, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He has sent me to you. This is my name forever and my memorial to all generations. It is the Hebrew root word hayah, which means to be. It is just forever to be, to exist. And he is taking on that name, which the Jews wouldn't even say in that day. It'd be one thing to just say the name I am. You, you would not say Yahweh if you were a true Jew. To this day, they don't pronounce the name. Jesus not only pronounces the name, but he claims it to himself. He says, I am. What, an as- what astonishing um, gall, if you will, to have claimed the covenant name of the God of Israel. He is the great I am. Number three, he is one with the Father. Just Look over a couple chapters in John, John chapter 10 and verse 30. John 10, 30, he's talking about how his sheep hear his voice. You are not my sheep, otherwise you would follow me. Still in confrontation with the Jews. He talks about how his father has given me these sheep. My father is greater than them all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then he says in verse 30, I and the father are one. He is one with the father. Who claims this? Who claims such an astonishing claim to be one with the Father? And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works. So so they pick up stones to stone him because this is blasphemy, claiming to be God. And, And a lot of people say, well, he wasn't claiming to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, look at verse 33. How does this happen? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a, here it is, man, 
Make yourself out to be what? God. There is no question in the Jews' mind what Jesus was saying this day. You, being a man, we know you're a man, we've watched you grow up, you are claiming to be God. He is one with the Father. Let me add a fourth one. He is the image of the Father. He is the image of the Father. Look at John 14. You know this text. It is the disciples. Jesus is about to leave them. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Very strange. Why would some, well, believe in God. Wouldn't that be enough? But Jesus says that's not enough. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. You know the story. I go, prepare a place for you. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. Why do you say, show us the way? Um, Jesus then, that famous verse in 14.6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Well, what are you saying? Philip catches what he's getting at here. Philip asks the question, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. We just want to see the Father. Take us quickly to the Father. We'll see him. And Jesus, I feel in a note of exasperation, he's been with them. This is the end of his ministry. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Now, just back up a minute here. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long that you have not known me, Philip, that you say, show us the Father. And then he says in verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? And what he's saying here, he's not saying, I am the Father. He's saying, I have fully and perfectly revealed to you who the Father is. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the image of the Father. The Father didn't die on the cross. Jesus is not the Father. The Spirit didn't rise from the dead. But God sent the Son to, to die on the cross for your sin and mine. And the Spirit rose him from the dead to the glory of the Father. He's the image of the Father. Let me give you number five here. He is personal Lord and God. Jesus is personal Lord and God. You say, well, that's pretty clear. Where do you get that? John 20. John 20 in verse 24. This is after his resurrection. He has paid the price for sin. He is now among his disciples who were still not believing him. Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas needed proof. And Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not there at the time when Jesus had originally come. The disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. He's risen from the dead. In other words, he's back. But he said to them, this is Thomas, unless I see the nails and the imprint on his hands and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. See, this is a choice. Faith is a choice. Unbelief is a choice. People choose not to believe, and Thomas was one of them. After eight days, verse 26, again, his disciples were inside, and 
and Thomas came with him. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, hard to know what's going on there in his resurrection body. But Jesus appears before them, and he stood in their midst, and he says, peace. <laughs> I mean, they're just hanging out, having their little, you know, what, whatever they're talking about. And Jesus comes in, peace be with you. And then he said, Thomas, <laughs> come here, Thomas. Reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. And then in the most amazing words of scripture, Thomas replies, verse 28, he cries out and says to him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God, as ascribing divinity and godness to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see me and yet still believe, speaking of you. He is personal Lord and God. Literally in the Greek, Lord of me, kurios, God of me, theos. There's no way to get around this fact in the scriptures that he is both Lord and God. Let me give you another one from our own book of Philippians, chapter 2. Make your way quickly to Philippians. The sixth title of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he is God's equal. Would you write that in? He's God's equal. He is equal to God. You say, really? Does the Bible say that Jesus is actually equal to God? Well, take a look. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we haven't gotten through this yet, but he's talking about how we should not be selfish. Don't look out for your own interests. Have the interests of others. And then he uses Christ as our example. Have this attitude, verse 5, Philippians 2, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here it is, verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're going to work through this, but he was in the form of God. That word means literal, literally means shape of God. And then this word um, equal with God, he did, not he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the word isos. It's the Greek word from which we get the word isometrics or isosceles triangle, a triangle with two equal angles. He is isos with God. He is equal to God. You don't have to turn there, but in John 5, verse 17, the Jews got this. You see, the Jews who did not believe in Christ, they are sometimes further along than many Christians who do believe in Christ. And the Jews mentioned this um, in John 5, uh, where is it at? 17. John 5, 17, where the, they were seeking to stone him again. This was prior to the confrontation in chapter 8. They were seeking all the more to kill him. He had said, my father is... where he, he healed on the Sabbath. I just want to give you the quick context. He healed on the Sabbath, and they, they confronted him for working on the Sabbath. And he says, my father's working until now, and I'm working until now. And they picked up stones to stone him because... He was calling God his own father, it says in verse 18, making himself equal with God. There's the same word again, isos. The Jews got it. They said, you're a mere man, and you are making yourself equal to God by claiming that 
God is working and you are working, etc., etc. Well, I need to hasten to move on. Point seven is that the Lord Jesus Christ is also known as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Did you know that Jesus made the world? Did you know that Jesus sustains the world? You say, where do we get that? Colossians. Colossians 1 and verse 15. Speaking of the beloved Son, verse 13, in whom we have forgiveness and of sins, verse 14. It says, verse 15, that he is the image of, of the invisible God. He's the mirror image. He is the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean that he was a reference to his birth. This is a reference to his resurrection, that he is the highest ranking of all the created order. He ranks above it all. And verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is, this is speech of divinity here. Well, no, he's probably talking about God here, right? He's not talking about God the Father. Look at verse 18. He, the same one who created all things, sustains all things, image of the of the invisible God is also the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and to rec reconcile all things to himself. What are all things here? Look at verse 9 of chapter 2, Colossians 2.9. For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is God being manifest in Christ. And beloved, th these just go on and on and on. Um, number eight, let me just give it to you here. Uh, he's the divine savior. Titus chapter one, first, sec first Timothy, second Timothy Titus, I'll, I'll just read this, Titus 1, where he is referred to as God our Savior, verse 3. Paul is an apostle of the gospel of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Wait a minute here, Paul. You said God was our Savior. Yeah, and I'm saying Christ Jesus is our Savior. I and the Father are one. If you have any question about that, look at Titus 2 and verse 13. The grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for, verse 13, that blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This is why we follow Christ. This is why we live a life of obedience to him. He's Lord of the universe. And if he's Lord of the universe, he ought to be Lord of your life as well. There's way too much data here, way too much accountability that we have to play lightly with this Lord Jesus. He is the divine Savior. Oh, it keeps going. Hebrews 1. He is the preeminent son, the heir. Oh, I can't get you out of here without just at least having you glance at Hebrews 1. This is an amazing, amazing text. 
1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many ways and portions. In these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Look at verse 3. And he is the exact radiance of his glory. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact, here it is, representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sins, we know we're talking about Christ. He made purifications for sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Trinity. This is Father, Son, and we'll see Holy Spirit next week. But he says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And I will be a father to him. And then it says in verse 6, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. God is calling upon the angelic beings to worship the Son. God has already made his point very clear in Scripture. If you were here last week, he will, he will allow nobody to be worshipped but himself. But here, God, the God of the universe, is saying, Worship the Son. And then it says in verse 8, Hebrews 1, But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Do you see what he's doing here? The Father is ascribing deity to the Son. These are, this is Isaiah 45, 6. It's the same Isaiah that I introduced the text with, or, or the, the sermon with. That there is no other God besides me. I am Alpha, I am Omega. And here in that same text, Isaiah 45, 6, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Look at verse 8, but of the Son he is saying this. Back in Isaiah, it was of God, but here it is of the Son. And, and just jot down 2.13. Anyway, we, we need to keep going here. Let me just give you the tenth one. I promise you a ten-point sermon. Boy, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Point 10, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Revelation 22, end of the Bible. Let's, let's see how this thing ends. The Lord Jesus Christ, his title is Alpha and the Omega. Now you have to remember before I read this to you, Isaiah 44, 6 says, There is no God besides me. I am the first. I am the last. Yahweh is claiming that exclusive title here. And then in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Folks, do you see the magnificent power and prominence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, this, we cannot say that, oh, well, he's a pretty good teacher, or he's got some good moral lessons. He is so far beyond that. And folks, today, I just, I'm out of time here. We have a bunch of application. I'm not even going to get to it here. The, the bottom line is we have to know this Christ. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. And sometimes we have such a wimpy, flabby, soft view of who the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to just be done with that. I hope today that I was successful in showing you his true glory. As you look at all of these titles, 
eternal God, great I am, one with the Father, image of the Father, Lord and God, God's equal, sustainer of the universe, divine Savior, preeminent heir, Alpha and Omega. That is Jesus. Do you know him? Do you serve that Jesus? Have you fallen and humbled yourself yet? Or were you like me, 19 years old, thinking I got everything all together? I've been to church. I know the lingo. And have you bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that you have today. If not, I pray that today would be that day when that would happen. Let's stand together as we dismiss. Thank you for giving me a little extra time today to give Christ his proper place in our midst. Heavenly Father, we join together as those who love you and who love your Son. We are those that worship you and we worship your Son. And this is good and right and you have called for this in Scripture. You have, you have exalted him to equality with you. And Lord, may we never be ashamed. May we never be twisted like a pretzel. May we understand very clearly what your word says about your precious, precious beloved son. What a gift he is to us. May we rejoice in him today. May we be forever thankful for his wonderful purchase on the cross for us as we we sing now of of the glory of his life, Lord. Let this resonate in in our hearts and minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.